I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Financial Times Big Read, a weekly podcast featuring the best of our long-form reporting from around the world. I'm Joshua Oliver from the Comment and Analysis Desk. Is the Middle East on the verge of a second Arab Spring? Lower oil prices have left some governments in the region unable to pay the generous subsidies that have helped to buy domestic tranquility in the past. Iran, Algeria, and Jordan have already seen protests, and some governments are cracking down on dissent. Andrew England and Heba Sala examine the economic and social tensions that are creating the conditions for another wave of popular uprisings. Their story is read by Heba. Friends were shot beside, in front, and behind me. Remembers Mohammed Sughayr of the tumultuous days in 2011 when Tunisian security forces battled to crush mass protests that eventually ended the brutal rule of Zain al-Abidin bin Ali. The events in Tunisia proved a catalyst for the Arab Spring as long-oppressed populations rose up against autocratic, corrupt regimes. Yet seven years on, Mr. Sughayr, a graduate who struggles to make ends meet on the six to eight dollars he earns a day working in a cafe, has, along with thousands of others, been back on the streets. The trigger for the anti-government protests in January were cuts to petrol subsidies and increased taxes on cars, internet use and phone calls. For many, like Mr. Sughayr, the government's austerity measures were just the latest example of the ruling elite hurting the poor. The 36-year-old Sughayr says, Youth just have no way of living. All we want is to reach the status of slaves, who are at least guaranteed food, clothes and shelter. It's not normal for a young man my age to be unable to afford marriage or a home. His anger reflects a common theme across a region burdened with the world's highest youth unemployment rate. About 30% of 15 to 24-year-olds are jobless. The region also has one of the world's fastest population growth rates, and its cash-strapped governments are looking to overhaul expensive subsidy systems. Iran was rocked by the biggest anti-regime protests in almost a decade in December, fueled in large part by austerity measures and resentment over corruption. Algeria and Jordan have also been hit by smaller protests this year over food price rises and public spending cuts. The bouts of unrest reflect the disillusionment felt by many across the Middle East as they blame their leaders for ignoring their demands for more equitable systems that deliver jobs, social freedoms and prosperity. Such pent-up anger was the catalyst for the 2011 uprisings in the region, igniting conflicts in Syria, Libya and Yemen and providing fertile recruiting grounds for extremist groups such as ISIS. The jihadi group is now in retreat after losing its strongholds in Iraq and Syria, but experts warn that the region remains gripped by a simmering crisis that poses an even graver threat to its long-term stability. 
That's the failure of governments to fix broken systems that for decades combined oppression with state largesse to maintain stability. Marwan Moasher, a former Jordanian foreign minister and vice president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, says that unless you come up with a new discourse politically and economically, then a new version of ISIS is going to emerge. It, the fractures in society, are the biggest problem, and unfortunately, very few leaders are paying attention to it. If they don't, we might face another Arab Spring, this time more radical and more violent, he adds. No one can predict when it will happen. Nobody predicted when the Arab Spring happened. But the status quo is not sustainable. Few Arab countries were left untouched by the 2011 uprisings. Some, like Morocco, implemented a degree of reform. Most reverted to tried and tested means to contain restive populations. Handouts and crackdowns on dissent. But the Middle East's traditional social contract, state payoffs, funded by petrodollars set against limited political freedom, is fraying. After a prolonged period of low oil prices, instability and economic stagnation, governments grappling with budget deficits and the deepening dependence on foreign debt are finally reigning in state benefits. Middle East governments spent $74 billion on fuel handouts in 2016, accounting for a quarter of the world's energy subsidies, according to the International Monetary Fund. Many are also cutting inefficient civil services that have acted as social safety nets but eat up about a third of government expenditure. Experts say the reforms are long overdue, but they're happening in a volatile environment defined by a rising sense of injustice among a youthful, urbanized and better informed population, with many Arabs believing their lives have worsened in the years since 2011. Murad Zabuti, a 34-year-old Tunisian who lives with his mother and survives off his late father's pension, says, It was better before the revolution because money went further, but now everything is expensive. I haven't had work for two years. I had hope in the revolution, but nothing has changed. He actually lives in one of the region's brighter spots. While other nations have become even more repressive, Tunisia is the only Arab state that can lay claim to a democratic transition in the wake of the 2011 uprisings. But the country's political gains have not been matched by economic success, as it remains blighted by 25% youth unemployment and yawning disparities between better-off coastal areas and the impoverished interior. In 2016, Tunisia agreed to a $2.8 billion loan package from the IMF to ease the stress on its overstretched state coffers, but it meant pushing ahead with painful reforms including the austerity measures that caused January's protests. Egypt took a similar path, securing a $12 billion IMF loan agreement under which Cairo slashed fuel subsidies and devalued the pound. The moves were welcomed by investors and businesses squeezed by a dollar shortage, but they heaped more pain on Egyptians as food prices rocketed, with inflation soaring above 30%. When the government tried to tweak its bread subsidy system, 
it was forced into a U-turn after protests erupted. Large-scale unrest in the Arab world's most populous nation has been averted partly because the subsidy cuts have taken place as the regime tightened its autocratic grip. Since President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi seized power in a 2013 popularly-backed coup, thousands of people have been detained and 450 websites blocked in a crackdown that Human Rights Watch describes as, quote, untamed repression of all forms of dissent. Mr. Sisi is assured of securing a second term in presidential elections this month. In Saudi Arabia, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is taking a multi-pronged approach to overhauling an oil-addicted economy and a cradle-to-grave welfare system. The 32-year-old heir apparent has wooed young Saudis with promises of creating a more tolerant, open society, including lifting the ban on women driving. He has also tried to narrow a fiscal deficit by cutting public sector benefits, increasing fuel prices by as much as 127% and introducing value-added tax. But even as dissent has been quashed in the kingdom with princes and journalists arrested, Prince Mohammed is treading a fine line. Riyadh reinstated benefits to civil servants and military personnel after just six months. Within days of introducing the 5% VAT and hiking fuel prices this year, Riyadh responded to complaints by granting state employees an additional monthly payment of 1,000 Saudi rials, the equivalent of $267 for a year. Yet if Prince Mohammed is to meet his targets, the next generation will have to lower their expectations over salaries and perks as they compete for private sector jobs. Two-thirds of Saudis are employed by the state, and the public sector wage bill accounts for more than 10% of gross domestic product, with government salaries on average 150% higher than the private sector, according to the IMF. Khaled al former professor of political sociology at King Saud University in Riyadh, says, We are entering new territory. If the economic squeeze keeps getting worse, then the possibilities are really wide open. Is the government going to take account of the reaction of the people? That's possible. If not, then you could have a very difficult political time here. Ragi Assad, an Egyptian professor of planning and public affairs at the University of Minnesota, argues that the region's woes are compounded by weak private sectors that are unable to absorb new job entrants, and also by rising expectations among job seekers, as education attainment rates have shot up. Mr. Assad says, There was an assumption that the private sector would take over the role of producing good jobs once the state pulled back. That simply hasn't happened. Foreign investment has not materialized, and domestic investment has gone into very safe areas that don't produce good jobs, for example, real estate. In the 1970s and early 1980s, an Egyptian entering the labor market with a secondary education or higher had a 70% chance of securing a public sector job. By the 2000s, 
those prospects had slipped to 25%, while the labour market entrant now has only a 15% chance of getting a formal private sector job, according to Mr. Assad. There are more jobs in construction, often casual labour, than in mining, utilities and manufacturing combined, he adds. Egypt's population has swelled from 69 million in 2000 to almost 96 million and the number of university graduates has risen to about 500,000 a year. Mr. Assad says, when you educate young people, you raise expectations and when you're unable to meet those expectations, you get a lot of anger and frustration. Most of the unemployment in the region is due to people not getting their first job. It's not people losing their jobs. Eventually, they will get a job in the informal economy after having waited in the queue for several years. Mr. Assad believes that repression can only muzzle such frustrations for a limited time. He says, the risk is you have more unrest or more repression. It's the middle class or those aspiring to be middle class who are most disaffected, because that is who the social contract was with. The IMF is aware of the risks. Christine Lagarde, the fund's managing director, warned Arab countries in January to accelerate job creation, saying, The public dissatisfaction bubbling up in several countries is a reminder that even more urgent action is needed, adding that, 27 million people will enter the Arab workforce in the next five years. The struggle for governments, however, is to attract investment into sectors that generate jobs, such as manufacturing. To ease the strain, the IMF is advocating more targeted social protection programs, such as cash payments to poorer segments of society rather than broader subsidy systems. But Mr. Moasher, the former Jordanian minister, insists economic reforms will only work if accompanied by political change, saying, You cannot have these autocratic systems, whether in Saudi Arabia, Egypt or Iran, or anywhere else, and hope that your economic process is going to sail smoothly. Nobody is talking about complete freedoms and total democracy overnight, but as you ask people for more economic sacrifices you must allow some political voices. Mr. Sughayr, the Tunisian, is convinced that maintaining the status quo will ultimately lead to unrest, saying the degree of public anger is constantly rising. Popular rage will reach a dangerous level. Thank you for listening to the FT Big Read. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on all the usual apps. FT Big Read is produced this week by Joshua Oliver and Anna Detter.